Welcome to Rave Dad's Diary, the show that explores the globalization of electronic dance music from the perspective of a rural Alberta boy turned raver. I'm your host and resident rave dad, Paul Brooks. Rave Dad's Diary broadcasts on CJSW 90.9 FM in Calgary at the University of Calgary campus and community radio station located on Treaty 7 land. I acknowledge the traditional territories of the people of the Treaty 7 region in southern Alberta, which includes the Blackfoot Confederacy, the Siksika, the Pagani, and Kaina First Nations, the Sutina First Nation, and the Stony Nakoda. The city of Calgary is also home to Métis Nation of Alberta, Region 3. Welcome to Episode 12, and the final episode of Season 1 of Rave Dad's Diary. If you've been along for the ride, thank you. If this is your first episode, and you like what you hear, check out the whole season via Apple Podcasts and CJSW.com. And don't forget to visit Rave Dad's Diary on the web, pbrooks.ca slash ravedadsdiary. That's the letter P. Brooks, like the city in southern Alberta, dot ca slash ravedadsdiary. In this episode, I check back in with urbanist Sheena Jardine Olade from Night Lab, and we talk about what municipalities can do to start preparing for success when the aftershocks of the pandemic have settled. I also chat with Sachin Sudra from Namaste Cooking about bringing an ancient wisdom and branch of wellness called Ayurveda into the rave. Today's musical guest is signed to the label Brain Feeder, where label boss Flying Lotus describes their productions as fucking insane. Stay tuned to hear my conversation with Little Snake and a special feature he prepared just for Rave Dad's Diary. It's the beginning of January 2021, and I'm speaking with producer and DJ Little Snake. Hey, Gino. Hey, how's it going? It's going great. You reached out to me about being a guest on the show, and that felt really good to me because I'm a fan of yours, and I'm grateful for the chance to talk to you. Thank you, man. That that means the world to me. I uh, not only do I admire specifically your opinion about, you know, the timeline of the scene but um i really really just admire the whole concept of the show and just being able to see all these perspectives from different people and i think as this first season wraps up this is a great conversation uh and feature to end on because you and i are sort of a generation apart you were starting to come to the club and I was starting to see you at events at a time when I had already been in it for over a decade and I was kind of trying to uh, untangle myself from the late nights and other things. Totally, totally. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm curious. Why, why were you trying to untangle it? What, what came into your life? Well, that's a, I mean, that's a really good question. Uh, yeah. You know, I, I was a new father. Um, I have a six-year-old now, but the consistent late nights, you know, being up until 4 a.m. at least three or four nights a week uh, is really yeah. hard on my own physical and mental health, and it wasn't good for my family. So 
I was uh, trying to figure out a way to, you know, continue working in, in, in music, which I love, but uh, not just trashing my, my body with those late nights and, you know, uh, impacting my family negatively. People who work in nightlife, I mean, there's, there's no such thing as, as, as work-life balance. It's all consuming. I mean, yeah, I'm honestly at a point, it's funny that you brought that up. I'm kind of considering myself. It's like, I know that Little Snake, the project, could have some very, very valuable outcomes. And it could be the rest of my life. But if it comes to some sort of situation where it does become like maybe a big label deal or maybe I have put too much energy into it my whole life that I don't know what else to put into my life because it's become like that. What happens when I settle down and want a family? You know, is it too late at that point? So uh, on the opposite end, I am I'm you know questioning the same things <laughs> yeah so well it's good to think about it now and uh yeah take my advice <laughs> i think that i mean i'm of the opinion that each generation that comes should know more and you know be, be smarter than the, than the generation before it and it, hopefully you take uh you know you you see uh, the situation that we are at currently and with people like you uh in in this generation I'm really optimistic about where we're going. Hey, thank you. I appreciate that. So you've prepared an hour-long segment that we're going to listen to in a little bit, but I have to say you have a really good handle on radio. Are you naturally a radio geek? Um, oh, man. I, I honestly could go off about just, you know, some of these interests very naturally. I think I recorded this first bit in, like, one take, but at the end of the day, I... uh like I said, I'm too far into music at this point to choose radio or podcast. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so despite all of the setbacks in 2020, I think you put out some really special releases and you made some pretty cool announcements. I want to talk about your collaboration with major electronic music figure, Eamon Tobin. How did that come about? I got turned on to Amon Tobin through my sister, Leah, um, who's also an like relative in the Calgary scene. And she was just like giving me LimeWire MP3 downloads to my, like not even iPod at the time. And like an iRiver. She was just like, yeah, something a like Zune. that. And yeah, it was the Zune actually. Yeah. <laughs> and um, she, I don't know how she stumbled upon it. Like she wasn't even going to shows or anything, but she was like, Hey, I found this dude named Amon Tobin. And it was like something from Islam or something. And I was like, this is really, really crazy. Like, it was, like, kind of beautiful, kind of this dubstep vibe. Like, just went to Nero was, like, coming into play. And um, I was like, wow, this is, like, super, super incredible. And I kind of put it down for, like, three or four years as I started getting into, like, you know, production of hip-hop and um, house music and techno music. And then finally come back, like, years later, I was in L.A. and Amon Tobin... Um, was talking to my label manager at the time and he was like, yeah, Little Snake has been putting out like crazy, crazy tunes. And my label manager told me about that and I was like, what the fuck? He's like a genius. Like it still holds true to this day. And sure enough, um, Amon wanted us to come to his studio in LA. And so we all decided to go. It was like me and a couple of friends from this label, Renraku and the label head. And Leo was there, I believe. And we walk up this huge like hollywood hill and there's um a mclaren parked outside of the like this mansion and a row of houses that like definitely did not seem like 
it would be anywhere close to Amon's house. But this one stood out so much that we were like, well, this clearly doesn't look like Amon Tobin's house, but it's the only one that's like unique from the rest of the houses. It's probably Amon's house. So we message him and he's like, yeah, just come inside, let yourself in. I'm in the studio. And we go, we find the studio. And as soon as we open the studio door, it's like pitch black in there, except for the modular lights and a, like a ray of sunshine kind of just comes into the studio and he gets like angry at us. He's like, Oh God, like, why would you do that? Like, <laughs> Don't like close the door, get in and close the door. And from there on out, he was the nicest guy. You could tell he'd just been in the studio for like probably three or four days. Like it wasn't like a, uh, a situation where he left it a lot. And, um, we briefly commented and he said, I'm sitting on about seven albums right now under different aliases and working on a two fingers one. And we were all like, Oh, we can't wait for that two fingers one. And then it was just kind of like this nice weird encounter where we had met like one of all of our idols. And then months later he had messaged me and he was like, Hey, I just like, I don't know why I didn't think of it before, but it, the two fingers like LP seems to really be lining up with the sound you're going for. Do you want to write a track for it? I was like, sure enough, like, let's get it. So yeah, I think like later that day we wrote the entire track. Aside from your collaboration on the two fingers project, Eamon Tobin appeared on a release that came out near the end of 2020 titled Loophole. Tell me more about that project. Loophole was interesting because he, I feel like I tried to really, really commandeer like this um, specific, specific concept. And it was more of a narrative concept that was going along with another project. Um, it seemed like it served this really functional purpose of being an interlude that was also a wormhole you know like it was this interlude of many different sounds but it also brought you into a new dimension and that's how you got out of the original like palette of sounds and his take on it was that he kind of wanted to just make some sort of track where we would like take hit for hit shot for shot a different sound design method so throughout this weird kind of like process of you know he wanted to juxtapose our sound designs and i wanted to introduce this narrative it all kind of somehow just fell into place like it just made perfect sense and everybody was happy at the end but at the same time it left me with this raw feeling of like damn i didn't get exactly how i wanted it you know <laughs> so it was it was interesting but it seemed to work out in this weird esoteric like perfect sense and yeah it's kind of a once in a lifetime collab
You're listening to Rave Dad's Diary, and my guest is Little Snake. Just coming in at the end of 2020, I saw you posting about the new Grand Theft Auto update and your mm-hmm. music being included in the update with artists like Flying Lotus, uh, MF Doom, R.I.P. Uh, yeah. Are you into the GTA franchise? Uh, were you into it before this? Yes, definitely. I mean, like, I I had found out about Flylo before GTA, but, like, I remember when GTA 5 came out and there was a Flylo FM thing. I was like, oh, like, Flylo is dope. Like, I'd love to, like, go play that for Flylo FM and then, like, sure enough, play GTA 5, like, strictly for, like, three or four years. Because I'm young. I'm 22. So when GTA 5 came out, like, I was a kid playing video games. Like, it was, like, it was my time to shine. And, uh, then while GTA was out and I was playing it, I got into contact with Flying Lotus for Brain Feeder. And then sure enough, I, it was weird. I basically got to watch the evolution of like my love for Flylo, my love for Grand Theft Auto, and then my personal attachment to all of those two things like expand infinitely. Yeah, that's crazy. I mean, yeah. uh, what did that feel like when you did you get to play the game recently and, and hear your own song in the game? Yeah, it's it's uh I've been playing it like frequently, I would say, just to get the full effect because I feel like if I like just play it and like fully take it in and just sit there and listen to my song and drive around, like I I'm just going to psychotically break or something. Like it's <laughs> it's like this like kind of uh it seems too much. It's too good to be true almost at this point. So I've been kind of like playing it here and there and just letting it sink in over time. I was uh, checking out the 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 Moody Man uh, like set that that was included in the new update, <laughs> and uh, the the set like it 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 bangs, but yeah. also it really hit me in an emotional way. It was I was I blown away by this uh, club experience that had been uh, created, and like the Moody Man avatar and. Um, and the crowd sounds, you know, it was like a, a for 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 somebody who spent so much time in in nightclubs. I was, uh, yeah, it was kind of an, an emotional moment for me. But what it was, yeah, it was it was really a homage to rave life that like they really pinned down to the head. Like it was great. <laughs> so yeah. I mean, obviously these these video games, like they and, and the way that music is synchronized in them now, is having yeah. a, a huge impact on a generation of, of of producers and music makers like yourself. Yeah, totally, totally. I mean, in perspective, this was just the online update. So uh, while a lot of the GTA players that are still playing GTA are playing online. <laughs> It's not the initial shock of like, you know, the game just came out and, you know, you're like checking out Flylo for the first time. And then this is one of the fresh sounds you hear. It's it still is kind of this like embedded thing into game players that have been playing this game for years. That is a new thing to them. But at the same time, like when you do take something, for example, of like a new game with a new radio station that's that's a young kid's music taste for the rest of his life like (laughs) that could quite possibly dictate you know what he listens to forever in 2020 we saw a lot of artists and brands take a stand for their values and when i first met you when you were younger i just i remember you really standing by your convictions i'm wondering where where that part of you comes from an interesting take um 
I I think that part of me comes from, I, I guess now it's a bit more tangible. I have personal marginalizations that I can touch on a little bit, but I'm probably not going to touch on too much. I'm disabled and pansexual. And that's on its own is a pretty harsh, like, intersect and i can relate to more intersects throughout that marginalizations um and i think that's a in general a good foundation of like you know standing true to your morals because those typically those intersects typically you know breed the best morals for a lot of people and um that in a really tangible sense that's where it's at i think at the end of the day it's pretty simple like we in terms of my values socially i do think a lot of these issues are brought to the attention of the general public now. A lot of them are to do with people dying. For example, like the Black Lives Matter movement, people are straight up dying, you know. And when you turn a blind eye, it's 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 nothing less than direct and like intentional. So at this point, it's just kind of like a it's a amount of self responsibility I have of just making sure I don't turn a blind eye to parts of myself I don't like and making sure we collectively do that and um, holding each other accountable to making sure that we all take accountability for, you know, everybody. <laughs> you know, it's it, it's interesting the, the the type of music that you make um, juxtaposed with uh, you know the the values I see you express uh, personally and, and through your, your your social media accounts. Um, in, in that, in, in my experience, the more left leaning and abstract electronic music genres have been uh, dominated by white men and a predominantly like a white fan base. Um, I think that that's changing, but what is your perspective as an artist working at the vanguard of these sounds? Uh, does does that stereotype uh, hold true, or is it is it is it changing? Um, it is changing for sure. I I think. Thank you for bringing that up. I think that the one thing that we are not paying attention to the most and it's the one reason it's really not kind of uh a forefront of equality is that we interpersonally as white people don't hold each other accountable for making sure everybody gets an equal chance like there's you know every now and then it'll be this like experimental based lineup of like all women but the title like the title of the show is just all women you know like it's like it seems like the actions we are taking are super performative and then the actions we don't take just are accepted as the regular and i think it really really is just a certain matter of you know booking diverse lineups and not out of meeting a quota but for the sake of there is crazy crazy talent out there that we're turning a blind eye to it's really it's really just a matter of looking like there's so much good talent from every marginalization and it's up to us as white people to you know give that person a chance and give them a, like a pedestal essentially when the Black Lives Matter movement was at the center of attention in mid-2020, you did a fundraiser for Black trans sex workers. How did you raise money, and why did you raise money for that group specifically? Sure, yeah. Um, it seemed like, obviously, 
it was the height of kind of a conscious revolution. One of the bigger revolutions we had had, not only in uh, our conscious minds, but in the civil rights movement. And I just wanted to use whatever voice I had, however small, in the most impactful way possible, because that's, you know, what you should be doing in that time. <laughs> it's not really about that. Um, so I, I had, I had these test pressings from something I was going to press the vinyl. I think there was about 10 of them. And, uh, I, we decided not to press it to vinyl, but we had all these test pressings and we were like, what do we do with these? Like, you know, there, should we just like throw them out? What do we do? <laughs> and, um, we decided that we had slowly caught on that a lot of people would catch on to the shit, you know, like vinyl heads are vinyl heads. They're going to go crazy for this on Discogs either way. So we set like kind of a fair price. I think it was $50 a TP. And we um, picked a few GoFundMes for Black Trans Lives, uh, specifically sex workers. And it, it, it was mostly revolved around the concept of like the highest marginalization you could have as a Black person. And for us in the time, the thing that made the most sense is like sex worker, trans, woman um so if you are black and you have all these other marginalizations going on you are in the limelight for a certain amount of time but they are like you know being a black trans sex worker woman is not a rare thing there's a lot of them you know and it's great that we highlighted so much general black issues but at the same time like this is going to be something that is going to come and go and it did you know in a lot of senses it did and the one thing that is almost like ashamed like it it seems like we are like putting shame on these super super marginalized groups for even bringing it close to attention and then just taking it right from their face we didn't go as far to like you know even bring light to that and they're still in the position they are now but obviously, um, I think a lot of those GoFundMe's got some some notable hype, and I'm glad that some impact was made. But it seemed like we there was just a lot of face value uh, change being done, and we had a chance to like kind of step forward into a really, really, really big conscious revolution and civil rights movement. And it just kind of happened with we repeated history, really. <laughs> your your social media is pretty lit from 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 my standards and i see your fans engaging with you and uh really rallying around uh some of these social justice topics that we're we're talking about can you describe your fan base to me who who listens to little snake uh it's it's strange because i've kind of pulled from like several different crowds the three main ones that seem to um spark an interest are you know the experimental bass scene fans of g jones fans of eprom and so on and so forth and then fans of brain feeder you know the people that have been there since they won since the beat scene days um so a lot of people that are just kind of open-minded experiencing thing that gets thrown at them whether it's electronic or jazz or whatever and then uh the third kind of sub realm of that is a lot of IDM people and post IDM people. So, you know, fans of Aphex, fans of Venetian and whatnot. And um, it's, it's, it's interesting because 
I can't really pinpoint the views specifically each one of these scenes has, but they do collide and have conflict every now and then. But the beautiful part of that too, is that they often um, learn from each other in ways that, you know, genres would learn from each other. So do you think you're going to get back to playing for live audiences uh, anytime soon? Um, the, definitely not until a vaccine for sure. I definitely vaccine oriented shows would be the, the move, but, um, I, I, I think so. Yeah. I would like to, I fantasize about it. I dance <laughs> in my studio alone. <laughs> yeah. In the meantime, what are you going to be doing? Um, I have been writing a lot of music. I've been working on visual concepts in in my spare time, really, I'm sitting on a lot of music and we are planning to release it. I don't know how much I can talk about, but um, yeah, I think it's just going to be a lot of kind of standard release projects from here on out. And uh, to make up for the unstandard part of it, the content of the releases is going to be a bit, a bit out there. <laughs> I'm so excited to see what happens next in your career. And Thank you. we're going to go on a ride now with you through some musical selections. Little Snake, yeah. it's been a pleasure getting to know you better on the radio, and I wish you all the best this year. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Hey, how's it going? My name is Little Snake, and you're tuned into Rave Dad's Diary, a show on CJSW. Um, if you're listening to this, you've probably just listened to our podcast interview that we just did, and I'll be taking over the next hour or so um, with a bit of a mix of sorts. I'm doing this more in kind of a uh, radio format, and the concept behind it is I'm going to look at tracks throughout our generations, me and Paul being from almost an entirely different generation span, and in no particular mathematical division or order or anything um i'm kind of be i'm kind of going to be slowly you know going from paul's era to mine and taking it from kind of my approach of idm and post idm and experimental edm and um seeing the origins definitely from back to when paul was born and you know where i'm at now and maybe play some some of my tracks at the end so We'll probably be going through about a dozen tracks and um, just looking at the correlations between. Um, the first track I want to take you through is a Curtis Rhodes track, who obviously is a very, very big inspiration for me. If you don't know who Curtis Rhodes is, he um, co-founded and popularized the term granular synthesis and the concept of it, um, which is pretty much very, very widely used in major EDM, experimental EDM today, all over the place, even pop sometimes. And um, he, I teach a lot of his theories and classes and private lessons. Uh, I open most of my classes with his statements and he has just more or less been in, in a really, really insane inspiration for me over the past years. And um, it took some digging to find this, but uh, funny enough, this track was release the same year Paul was born, which seemed really fitting, um, kind of a full circle gap and tie in between those two generations. But, um, yeah, this one's called N N score N S C O R took a lot of digging to find. It seems like it's Curtis Rhodes first ever released track. And even then his new release tracks aren't very, um, 
widely available. So I'm very, you know, lucky to have found this. And for a track from, you know, the early 80s or late 80s, rather, it seems to have uh, seems to have held up to some of the craziest standards we have in IDM today. So give it a listen. Um, you're tuning into Rave Dad's Diary on CJSW.
So once again, that was a Curtis Rhodes track. That was N-S-C-O-R by Curtis Rhodes. And once again, that was that was started in 1980 and finished around 1987. So honestly, holds up to be beyond some of the granular synthesis I can achieve today after my years of trying, you know, different granular techniques. It's It's really cool to see Curtis Rhodes and his projects this far back and, you know, how amazing... Uh, just sonically amazing they sound but i'd highly recommend you do some more information on curtis Rhodes if that interests you but just to give a little background a lot of this um sound was uh basically generated through punch cards of you know microseconds that were inserted in different you know tones and he would punch out whatever 10 milliseconds there would be of um a sound and run it through this huge huge machine and he'd wait weeks and weeks to have like a 10 second clip so obviously this track took a while but it's really cool to see you know such amazing amazing uh work come out of such just technologically unavailable times and hold up to this day i guess so that's really cool um moving on to kind of a correlated thing we're taking it a few years forward to about um roughly coming up on the 2000s here this is more so the 90s 98 type deal um we're looking at Atecra's original project their debut called lego feet um and this is their self-titled this is a track off that and it's interesting because you can hear elements of um granular within this track however they were in a, a whole different continent doing a whole different thing at the time with you know acid house on the rise and techno and um it's really cool to see these borders cross with no internet at the time and uh it'll be cooler to see how they mash up and become intertwined and um you know morph into each other as the time goes but i think it's really interesting that uh granular synthesis and granular sounds kind of went dormant as soon as the idm scene and you know the uk came up it almost became like this entirely unheard about thing after Curtis Rhodes releases debut until several years later. And then it started becoming, you know, kind of uh, a main focus in UK IDM, which was almost crazy to me because it's, it's while it is a French technique that Curtis Rhodes kind of founded, um, it is popularized through his work in Cleveland, Ohio and there's just so much weird geographical connections between all of this that even I, after my research of all of this granular synthesis, all of this IDM, I really do not understand how it became, um, you know, connected in the way that it has. And it makes sense for, you know, collective consciousness experiments to happen on their own in their own time. But even a lot of the practices Curtis Rhodes was teaching seem to come up in all these artists like, you know, Atecra, Aphex Twin, Venetian Snares, um, it almost the practices verbatim show up. So pretty interesting to see. Um, again, this is a track by Atecra's debut project called Lego Feet. And uh, you can check that out. You're tuned in to Rave Dad's Diary on CJSW. Oh, 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 
So yeah, once again, that was a track by Otekra's debut project, their first project ever as Lego Feet off their self-titled first debut album. And um, that was an interesting kind of look, I guess, on what the United Kingdom region was doing with IDM and electronic music at the time and synthesizer music. Um, and while they were kind of focusing more so on, you know, uh, hardware synthesizers, um, of the popularized versions, at least from Roland, like the 303 and the 808 and the 909, um, they had kind of stumbled upon these, uh, granular techniques that was kind of coming up slowly in the United States with Curtis Rhodes, like I said. Um, but the way they were doing it is they were kind of microsonically dissecting their breaks and their acid patterns through um, beat repeats that were standard to the 808 at the time. And they would do it on such a fine timing, such a fine level that it was creating granular sounds and through filters and whatever, they would distort and vary these sounds. And while it is different entire techniques from what Curtis Rhodes was doing a few years prior, it had a lot of the same, like, I guess, tones that he was using in the the punch card methods and stuff. And uh, yeah, it's a really cool take to see how that spans out across regions and time. But um, one thing I was kind of thinking of when I had, you know, selected these two tracks and talked about them is a lot of my, you know, uh, personal work is based on earlier IDM acid influences, 808 influences, and as well as a lot of early Curtis Rhodes granular synthesis. And I think it would be a good time to uh, plug a personal unreleased single from myself um, that kind of takes a glimpse into both the acid IDM early worlds of the UK and the strange kind of microsonic um, you know, no tempo sound design that was coming from Curtis Rhodes' granular exper experimentations. So um, this is a collab with a really, really cool dude I know named Sabroy. He uh, codes in DSP and makes music in Max for Alive as well as Ableton and just in general, a crazy galaxy brain dude. I've learned more from him about music than I have anything on the internet. But uh yeah, here's our collaboration. It's called Decimation of Movement Over Time. Yeah. 
Once again, you are tuned into Rave Dad's Diary on CJSW. Um, so we took a look at one of my tracks just now. Um, I am Little Snake, if you just tuned in. Uh, that was a unreleased track called Decimation of Movement Over Time featuring Sabroy. It's an unreleased track. Um, so with that track, like I said earlier in the show, it was kind of a sonic example of these experimentations and granular synthesis that was coming out of, you know, the 1980s and kind of a peek into um, so the, the uh, early experiments with synthesizer music in um, the United Kingdom at the time. And uh, it kind of fuses the two together in a way that works and holds up in the modern era of music, you know, EDM, so to speak. And um, what's cool about this is, when I was getting into this sort of fusion style of this old experimental stuff and the new experimental stuff and so on and so forth, where I was getting a lot of this inspiration from was uh, these really cool producers that I found through the EDM scene, ironically enough. Um, G. Jones and Eprom are great examples of that. Uh, and, you know, their whole vein, everybody within that scene, they kind of you know, fuse these two elements together before I'd even heard of them independently, whether it was IDM or, you know, granular experiments from the 1980s. But um, I was really inspired by all of this. And throughout these pieces, I kind of completely segregated myself from, uh, you know, the EDM scene and anything related to it, including these two artists. But I guess it was kind of a full circle moment going into this that I'd realized that it was in fact a fusion of these two or three elements from different points in time. And those two or three elements seem to be my favorite across, you know, the history of electronic music. And um, yeah, so like I said, those two producers I brought up earlier, earlier, Gene Jones and Eprom, um, here is one of my favorite tracks by them. It's called Demon Veil. And, uh, self-release probably i think 2019 august um and yeah here's a peek of some of my inspirations before i knew the original inspiration of that inspiration uh you're listening to cjsw rave dad's diary see every torch go up. I want to see every light to go up. I want to see the most noise on this beach when you hear that bass line. 
So like I said, that was a really, really good track by G. Jones and Eprom called Demon Veil. And um, like I was saying earlier, if you're just tuning in, this is kind of a modern day example that inspires my work a lot. Um, it is kind of this perfect fusion between early IDM experiments through synthesizers, um, uh, you know, breakbeats, 303s, whatnot, and kind of a... Um, really, really refined take on the early granular experiments that Curtis Rhodes and his, you know, accompanying fellow artists were doing. And um, this is a lot of what inspired me before I had found out either of these uh, early influences from G. Jones or Eprom. Um, so digging a bit further into this uh, just now, I guess, really, one thing I'm realizing is the kind of link and the glue between the old and the new within, you know, my work and G Jones and Eprom's work is kind of this element of like 
hip hop. It's this like dark, hard, uh, kind of just gangster, you know, 808 snare every now and then. And, uh, you know, just thumping kicks and the patterns within it, even the tempo sometimes. And, um, you know, I guess what we're really forgetting throughout all this is while Curtis Rhodes did popularize and, um, you know, kind of work on these new experiments with granular and, um, you know, Venetian snares and Autecra um, kind of popularized a lot of the IDM trends along with Aphex Twin, uh, you know, Acid House and this entirely house music techno is basically a black queer owned genre to this day. And it's really just um, these artists were kind of taking it and doing their own thing with it. But at the end of the day, this is a very, very, um, a very BIPOC oriented and queer oriented scene that we are capitalizing on at the end of the day as white people. And um, just to pay tribute to that, I'd like to take a moment to play another track that kind of glues um and you know recaps everything we've talked about from the uh idm influences of house and techno and acid and the granular experiments of um you know early experimental producers and the hip-hop elements um this next track is by somebody i look to up to highly uh flying lotus the track is called clock catcher and um it's interesting because this track kind of came out uh in the early la beat scene pioneering days and it uh it kind of hit that sweet spot of you know hip-hop production and idm and um, experimental synthesis music but when it came out at the time it was more so just kind of distributed locally throughout um you know california and throughout that it got, became super super popular but it, i don't think a lot of people had really you know paid attention so much to that point when lotus had brought all these works together and it just kind of came off as this entirely new thing that seems so original. While it is quite original, it definitely shows its influences on its sleeve. And um, it's it's really just kind of a shock to the senses, even to this day, hearing it. Um, and, you know, what it tickles within us that we like in other music we've heard. So once again, this is a track called Clock Catcher by Flying Lotus. <laughs>
Once again, that was Clock Catcher by Flying Lotus. Um, somebody I look up to quite a bit. And we're, if you're just tuning in, we're talking about early influences of IDM and experimental synthesis music and um, kind of the glue in pop music and hip hop. And um, I feel like we kind of demonstrated that a bit in Lotus's early work. But one thing I'd like to kind of jump ahead on in the timeline is where we're at with a lot of experimental music um, that has glued these things together yet has added their own kind of original um, element to it while, you know, keeping a lot of these very, very important, uh, I guess you could say, um, elements as well or, or signature sounds from these genres. And the result is very, very polarizing. Um, this would be considered hyper pop, this next track. It's a uh, 100 Gex track, Money Machine. Um, a lot of you will not be so happy that I played this. And for those of you on your way to work right now, uh, I suggest you turn to the next station because it is quite, quite a track that. Um, yeah, I, I honestly would suggest you just turn to the next station if you're on your way to work. I can't really explain it too hard, but quite an abrasive track. I personally am a big fan of the hyperpop movement um, because of its kind of um, culture and originality that goes behind it. Um, so I guess this track kind of is a... Uh, original take on a lot of these elements with something new added but it also has a lot of you know pop elements hence the name um taken from you know classic you know screamo and pop punk and all these kind of different uh it's it's essentially this you know normalized amalgamation of everything that's happened in music so far with just absurdly ironic weird textures and tones and melodies and um yeah, just kind of to bridge the generational gap, this is a new development, and I think it's kind of taking over the, you know, not only the experimental regions, but the actual pop regions of our radio currently. Um, and uh, yeah, it's kind of a cool take on, you know, everything that's gone on in such an absurd way to this point that it, while it sounds and holds up to something that could come out of, you know, the 1980s, if we gave them five meo dmt or something so um here is an example of that this is a hyper pop track by a hundred gex called the money machine hey you little piss baby you think you're so fucking cool huh you think you're so fucking tough you talk a lot of big game for someone with such a small truck oh look at those arms your arms look so fucking cute they look like little cigarettes i bet i could smoke you i could roast you and then you'd love it and you text me i love you and then i fucking ghost you Again, I'm 
Good morning, everybody. That was a 100 Gex track, Money Machine. Um, kind of a cool example of where we've come with influences of electronic and pop and hip hop and um, where we've kind of absurdly ended up with all these things, plus a different elements of, you know, uh, pop and all these crazy, crazy genres that we've come across along the way. Um, and yeah, that is a brief history, a very biased history on, you know, kind of IDM, experimental, electronic, hip hop, electronic. And, um, uh, I guess that's kind of a, uh, generational look into where we've come with it too, as well. Um, uh, I guess we're kind of approaching the end of this show. So I'd like to give out a huge shout out to Paul for having me on Rave Dad's Diary. Really, really cool to be able to do this with him. As soon as I heard about the show, I was so stoked to try and do something with it. So once again, thanks for having me on, Paul. Um, hope you enjoyed it. Once again, my name is Little Snake. Uh, you can check out some of my music on any major streaming platforms. Uh, Brain Feeders, SoundCloud, um, and I also have a new track that just came out, uh, you know, a few days ago on uh, the Grand Theft Auto 5 update. Um, go cop that if you have Grand Theft Auto 5. If you don't, highly recommend getting it. Um, I'm on there as an exclusive track along with, you know, uh, MF Doom, Madlib, um, Tierra Whack, some really, really crazy people. And uh, super, super honored to be on that list. So um, go check that out. Uh, keep your eyes peeled. Follow me on my socials, Little Snake XOXO. Um, and uh, yeah, more, more good things coming along the way. So thank you for tuning in. Uh, thanks again, Paul. And um, I hope you have a good morning or night wherever you are at in your life. <laughs> so um, yeah, thanks again. Bye.
You're listening to Rave Dad's Diary on 90.9 FM CJSW, broadcasting on Treaty 7 land at the University of Calgary. My name is Paul Brooks, and we just heard a takeover by Little Snake. Buy their music, follow them on socials, you know what to do. My conversation with Sheena Jardine Olade from Night Lab is coming up, but first, I'm going to have a quick chat with Sachin Sudra from Namaste Cooking. Sachin has supported me nutritionally and emotionally through some challenging raves. We've been trying to connect for this show, and we finally managed to squeeze in 10 minutes the day before I went to air. I know you are a very creative person, and that creativity is expressed through making furniture, cooking, teaching cooking. I think it's all grounded in Ayurveda. And uh, am I correct in saying that? Yeah, Paul, you just nailed it on the, you nailed it totally. So w- what is Ayurveda? Ayurveda is, it's, Ayurveda is an ancient medical practice system from India. It's over 5,000 years old. So it's an, it's an healthcare system. Um, it's one of the oldest recorded medicine practices in India. And they suppose you look at it in the world. And that also goes into like Vedic sciences, sacred geometry, my lineage I come from in woodworking and wood building and how I got into that. And then comes back to a spice pan <laughs> and teaching people how to cook for their health, for their diseases, and for symptoms. It's awesome. So for folks who are more rooted in, uh, you know, Western ways of, of thinking, how is this perhaps related to, to some health and wellness practices that we might be more familiar with, like yoga? Sure. So basically, when you look at Ayurvedic, this healthcare system compared, let's say, to a Western model of allopathic medicine, you're looking at mind, body, and consciousness. And you're taking those three strengths of physical strength, moral strength, and spiritual strength. So say in the West, uh, with health and wellness practices, uh, you can see Ayurveda as yoga. Everyone knows about yoga. Meditation, mindfulness, incense, golden milk, the kundalini rising, snakes, paisleys in fashion. Yeah, it, it, it's kind of like all those things that we can kind of see more in a material-focused way, but also how the whole, the whole basis of our mindfulness has been such a beautiful gift to incorporate into a Western world where it's very material driven and bringing back in this spiritual balance is, is like key because it, it gives a good balance for the material world we all live in as householders because we got to put you know bread on the table and then incorporating that spiritual level which allows us to have this balance because just like music and what the raver dad does here it's all about vibrations it's all about Um, (laughs) it's all basically coming back to like the universal consciousness of the universe. And that's what Ayurveda is in a sense of seeing how we're completely integrated with every living particle, star in space. It's all living and breathing. And there's this interconnection that intertwines into us uh, in the Vedics, we call it your Jiva Atman, which is like, like the Latin, like your soul within. That's interesting. It, it makes me think about uh, uh, a concept uh, and theory called panpsychism that uh, Sarah, my wife, uh, has been telling me about. And 
it, it, it almost seems like uh, some of the more mainstream uh, views on science are starting to look at maybe some of these ideas that are obviously uh, very, very ancient ideas. Yes, well, we, everything's given a term, a word. In science, we need to break everything down. We need to cut it up, cut it, cut it, cut it up and break it. And then we can understand it and explain it. But it's like, you know, Paul, like a father as well, like just the devotion of seeing your child, like such love. Um, there are things I think you can't put words into. In Ayurveda, prana, prana, prana is actually like considered the biofield. So your biofield of energy. You have brought your practices into the rave, and I've been able to uh, witness this and, and uh, participate. But tell me about what it's like teaching cooking in the middle of the rave at Base Coast Festival. Well, it's interesting taking like this brown guy, throwing him with a pan and his spices in the middle of a forest and giving him like a bunch of ravers who are high on energy, high on life. And they're looking at me and they want to learn about spices. It's amazing. It's actually a pure privilege. And, uh, you know, Paul, you opened the doors up for me to share this healing practice that I decided to do from my ancestry at EMD festivals. Like nobody teaches Ayurveda at EMD festivals. And e EDM festivals. <clears throat> EDM festivals, pardon me. And uh, that's a little bit of my airy quality coming out. It's <laughs> called Vata, which is an air element, FYI. And FYI, when we go to music festivals, the air element is full on. It's like parties, movement, sound, and the fire element is just, you know, in force. People are having some drinks or maybe indulging in some plants some medicines that help them unconsciously you know experience other things and how do we ground that down and bring in that earth element which is called kapha so for me it has been such a pleasure and an honor to come to a place like base coast a great safe platform by the way i want to say and bring some spice into that and teach people about hey how does maybe having this kind of spice help out to cool down your liver because it stimulates your enzyme when you're you know, you're, you're, you're feeding the fire inside of you a lot more. And we tend to do that in the West with a lot of our practices, like coffee, like say, drinking, um, motivation of uh, our drive to perform. And this performance at Base Coast, which is so inclusive for all genders, all people to attend. And it's just a, it's such an honor. I love it, Paul, honestly. I've actually had an opportunity where I can inspire and give my light, give the wisdom that's been passed on to me onto others. I've been told by my teachers, and I don't, I'm not a teacher, I'm a practitioner, because I'm always learning. And these are places where I find you have generations of Westerners, people from all cultures coming together. And what a great place to bring in a little bit of um, some balance. And when people leave, and they're like, hey, maybe I can put some turmeric in my coffee or my tea or some food I'm going to make after during, during my festival experience. It's one of the most impactful things in my opinion. And um, thanks to someone like you, I've, I've had such an amazing opportunity over the past eight years to do this. Well, uh, I, I mean, I, uh, I, I appreciate that. And I have benefited greatly personally from being able to hang out with you through these uh, experiences in all of their fun and um, you know challenging moments, especially as I've 
worked many of these events. And, yeah. uh, you know, you've been there to help help prop me up. It's interesting. I've been my own personal, you know, uh, mental health and physical health. have I've been really focused on them, um, especially since, you know, the beginning of the pandemic. And I used to look at things like yoga and eating healthy as trying to cram it into the box of my schedule and um, using it as a means to survive. And my mindset is really changing this year. And I'm starting to, I don't know, incorporate these things more holistically into my life in a way that feels like more sustainable, more authentic. And I don't think that I'm alone. Um, What, what are you noticing uh, what, what, what patterns have you noticed are, are changing in, in people's lives? Hands down mental health, Paul. Um, I find that there's really no cure for a disease unless you can understand its root, um, from an Ayurvedic perspective. And we can, you know, take a Tylenol for hungover, but <laughs> if you do that, like over 60, 60, 180 times going on and on, it's going to have an effect on you. And then, you know, you look, America spends between like 3000 a year on holistic healthcare insurance alone. Um, but I guess what I'm trying to get at is that, yes, I do see that there is a huge, there's a big part of how this holistic healthcare is helping people out. Totally. So as we're getting older, what are some tips that you have for ravers like me who want to age gracefully and stay limber and nimble and keep in shape for the raves of the future? Well, hands down, you know, like if you're on Instagram or on the web, interweb as we all are, you can totally see like, it's like everyone's doing yoga. I think any form of physical activity is good, but I believe um, aging gracefully, say North America, for example, sauna culture is great. Good rest, good diet, um, eating for a certain season, rest. Rest is essential. Cultivating all the energies of your body, drinking water, meditating. And by meditating, Paul, I mean however that looks for someone. But really what that means is just closing your eyes and chilling out, not doing anything else, even if the storm is happening within. Just giving yourself some time. That's how Gautama Buddha became enlightened under a banyan tree. Um, more time in nature, sleeping at a good time, eating on time, indulging in your own self-care practice because you're not sweet 20s forever. And by that, I mean your internal organs are what take the hacking over time. So, for example, if you're drinking tons of coffee, you enjoy your beers, Remember, men, when men drink beers, there's a lot of estrogen in beer. So we'll get big boobs. We'll get big tummies. So we got to be careful of the balance of when we take things. So it's about balance. Put some oil in your coffee. Uh, that cools down the amount of heat that builds up in your stomach um, from coffee. And coffee is very heating. Again, uh, the liver in traditional Chinese medicine relates to um, the emotions of anger when they're imbalanced. So how do we cool down? things in our body, heat in our body and bring it to balance. For men, uh, well, you know, men who want to have libido might want to have kids. Hormones. Men have adrenaline and testosterone. So yeah, you got to wake up in the morning and go cut down a tree or do something physically active because we rise with the sun. Surya is known as the sun in, in like Surya Namaskar is known in yoga as the sun. So we're rising with the sun. We, we naturally have these 
hormones inherited in us. So doing things that regulate us, but also, you know, we're, we're in a really a driven society that can be quite stressful, except especially now in the pandemic. So it's an important time to give yourself some time to relax. I can't stress that even more. Um, like for women, we have estrogen and progesterone. Stress can rob our cortisol and then rob women's sexual hormones. And for that, I really say to all my clients, like, just relax, stay calm. Like, no wonder so many people do yoga because it's calming down. You know, we look at the sympathetic, parasympathetic heart rate. We get regulation. You're taking in superfoods, all these amazing foods. But nothing's going to work if you're not relaxed because if you're stressed, your body can actually absorb all these kinds of amazing minerals and nutrients. And by the way, on men and women, I want to say, I mean that for them and they, for all genders and all respects of all people. Um, Ayurveda is an old system of science which needs to be changed and how we actually term things as well. So that's one thing I'm working on as we speak. Um, I hope that helps. That helps so much. And there's so much that we could talk about. And there's also topics that I want to talk to you about in a future season of Rave Dad's Diary. It's been really great to catch up with you on the radio. It's been too long. Thank you, Paul. Um, it's a blessing. Um, namaste. I'm excited to welcome back my dear friend and urbanist, Sheena Jardine Olade from Night Lab. Welcome, Sheena. Hi. 
So last time you were a guest on the show, we talked about some of the COVID-19 pandemic's effects on the nightlife industry. Listeners can find that conversation in episode two. But it's a new year full of unlimited potential. What are we going to talk about today? So first of all, I want to say thank you very much for having me back. Um, This show has been such an awesome journey of how music touches lives in a variety of ways and often brings us together. Many of us share the same story. You know, we have a passion for music and we've witnessed how music like transforms, bridges cultural divides and provides an opportunity for things like self-expression in like vulnerable ways. Mm -hmm. Um, For those who missed this first segment that I was on, um, I talked about a lot of opportunity that COVID-19 provided um, post-pandemic to actually reinvent nightlife and incorporate some of the elements that were previously missing. and forming things like mutually beneficial relationships and possible partnerships where we didn't see them before. Um, So today, just following in that kind of thread of thought, I'd like to talk about municipalities um, and what they can do to start preparing people for the success after the aftershocks of the pandemic has settled um, and possible partnerships with municipalities. What can we do to uh, lobby our representatives uh, for help with the music community, as well as what municipalities can do to buckle down and actually um, help us. I got to be honest, when I started working on Rave Dad's Diary, I wasn't sure if dance music was going to come back through Rave Dad's diary and talking with lots of folks in the industry, I'm feeling pretty optimistic in 2021. What do you, how do you feel? I'm feeling pretty optimistic as well. Um, I mean, there is an opportunity, there is going to be turnover for sure. But with that turnover comes a little bit of like new blood, a little bit of innovation. Um, The people who um, have resiliency um, are going to be able to stick it out. They've reinvented themselves and also dug deep to find things within themselves to survive during this time. So I think that all of those things coming together are absolutely positive. Um, And although in the middle of the crisis, um, a lot of people just, you know, had to slow down, which was probably a good thing, um, and just kind of rethink their practice, um, I think that the results of that are going to be something pretty special when we come out on the other end of this. I I agree. And the, I am feeling little twinges of excitement uh, here and there. So what do you think local governments can do to help restart the nighttime economy? Yeah, because I do think that it's important to like form these private public partnerships. Um, You know, we can't do it all by ourselves and the government doesn't get off um, just by not helping as well. cities are a very important part of um, government work and how they work and how and how vibrant they are and how you know people interact with them is also very important um, to a city's health and well-being so um, it's important for them to step up and recently I gave a presentation to a cultural department in one of Canada's uh, biggest cities and my colleagues at Night Lab and I we put together a list of some of the things that cities can do to support the music industry Um, So if you're working in the municipality and you're wondering how you can help, or if you're a musician and you're wondering what tools to ask your local rep for, um, you should stay tuned. Awesome. Well, uh, let's go through some of these uh, recommendations that you came up with at Night Lab. 
Yeah, so um, the first one, and it's kind of really funny, <laughs> take a temperature check. As we know, temperature checks are important in this in this time. Hey but it's also <laughs> it's also important just to figure out where people in the music community are. Uh, people are pretty tapped out, and our usual paths of engagement might not necessarily work. So what can we do to first engage that community and uh, get that preliminary data that we need to find out where they need the most help? Um, some ideas are maybe engaging community champions for a preliminary check-in and working with them so that they can engage their communities on a more personal relationship-based level. Um, and also, you know, musicians are broke at this time. We're broke even when it's not these times. So maybe it's time to start um, paying people for their time and offering them honorariums. So what do municipalities do when they get this data? Uh, so, um, Based on the engagement that you get or that you glean, um, determine actions that meet the most pressing community needs. Uh, so right now we need a couple of wins. And it might seem silly, but having a few successes can really buoy morale. So are there some quick actions that we can take um, to address the current situation um, that is happening within the community, especially the most pressing ones? Uh, for example, in Ottawa, there was some pretty quick turnaround around things like patio expansions and liquor licenses. Uh, we saw those things turned around within the matter of like a week or two. So what can municipalities do that can reduce barriers, reduce fees, uh, things like busker licenses, um, you know, can we reduce the fees on those? Can we allow um, public space to be more about street performance, you know, like a mime on every corner? I don't know. Um, that sounds you know, horrible. That but what about a musician on every corner? <laughs> a musician on every corner. Exactly. Um, Australia did it. They had some really interesting places where they were uh, paying musicians. The city in, I think it was in Melbourne, was paying musicians to actually uh, perform on multiple street corners, um, solo performances. Um, so there was music going on all the time. So not only was the musician getting paid, but Melbourne was still like retaining some of that vibrancy that it's known for. Yeah. I mean, I, I remember seeing some encountering some music on the street this summer and after going without seeing live performances for so long, um, it was really impactful. And I don't think that that will necessarily be going away when the, the pandemic is over. I think that uh, maybe some of these outdoor performances and performance spaces might be here to stay. Absolutely. I think that it's important. I mean, municipalities have a lot of public space and a lot of times they don't even realize that the regulations are prohibitive to people actually performing in them and that those spaces would be more inviting and, and you know, people would want to hang around in those spaces if there were things like live music or, you know, other artistic performances. So I think it's really important for municipalities to look and to identify those spaces, such as possibly mapping them out. Um, and again, like I said, just kind of reducing any sort of barrier that might be in place uh, through regulations and bylaws and licensing to make these things happen. What about how things have been shifting to online? Uh, how can we leverage some of the uh, these online avenues to communicate with audiences and artists? Well, I mean, I was just recently part of um, a granting committee, and I was absolutely fascinated with the many ways that people were learning to pivot online um, and just what they were doing. Because what happens is um, this online pivot has not only allowed them to express their art and to keep on doing what they're doing and possibly in some cases, uh, you know, get some revenue stream, but it also has exposed a lot of musicians to a larger or more global audience. Um, so 
I think that uh, with all of this sort of like new exploration into um, what we can do with innovative technology, that municipalities can also create um, opportunities uh, for learning. Um, like what skills uh, can, can, they, can they help? Can they help with uh, technology, adapting um, work to technology? Can they um, also possibly uh, give learning on other skills such like as grant writing or building a strategic a plan or project management? Um, I found that a lot of artists kind of lost sight of like why they started creating in the first place. They were in such panic mode that um, they weren't able to think about how to move forward with that next step. So can municipalities create a, a place, a project-based um, sort of grant where they work with you from the start to finish and you know an artist develops something that is based in their work and who they are and they end up with a project but they also end up with the tools to project manage that project for the future. That's a great point yeah use this downtime to learn some new skills and uh, bolster your, your business skills so that we can hit the ground running when everybody gets that vaccine. So again like um I think that the last one that I really want to talk about, because we have talked about reducing barriers before, the last one that's really important is about developing partnerships both internally and externally. Um, I think that a lot of times we think that we're on our own and that our problems are just our own um, and that they're unique to us. But that's not necessarily the case, not saying that we aren't special, but that there's other people experiencing similar hardships. And what we need to be doing is we need to be pooling our resources. Um, that, can, that pooling of resources from a municipality point of view can be um, cross-departmental, it could be interdepartmental. A lot of times within city organizations, um, departments don't talk to each other, they're completely sil siloed off. Um, and just going beyond that, we can talk about uh, you know, forming networks on a national level. How can we exchange national information? How can, we, how can we exchange global information? Like what can we do to reach out to other cities and other musicians and artists and national organizations, music organizations that are trying to come to the same conclusions or trying to fix the same issues that we are and just sharing that information. So do you have any closing advice for, for municipalities and anybody who might be tuned in who wants to really be actively engaged in helping the nighttime economy get restarted again? Yeah, for sure. I found that the biggest, the biggest, um, the most useful tool in your toolkit is transparency. Um, I find that sometimes the most heartening thing just for anyone is knowing that there's something or a plan coming around the corner. Um, being open and transparent about everything, whether it's your successes or your setbacks, helps build genuine relationships. And it's the genuine relationships and the trust that we need to all have in each other to move forward so that we could, you know, beat this thing and come out um, on the other side better and, you know, hit the ground running. It's great to hear, and uh, I share your optimism and enthusiasm, and I'm excited to keep talking to you about this topic and dance with you again soon. Yes, I can't wait for I can't wait for that. I can't wait for that moment.
You're listening to Rave Dad's Diary on 90.9 FM CJSW, broadcasting out of the University of Calgary on Treaty 7 land. Episode 12 and Season 1 are coming to a close. Rave Dad's Diary is written, produced, and hosted by Paul Brooks. The show is produced on Treaty 7 land at CJSW 90.9 FM in Calgary, Alberta. Season 1 theme music is Orchestral Lab by Guido, released on Punch Drunk Records. The Rave Dad's Diary logo is by Homesick. I must express my gratitude to the people who made Rave Dad's Diary possible. Thank you to my wife, Sarah, and daughter, Clara, for supporting me for the last three months as I put over 250 hours into this volunteer project. Thank you to the staff, volunteers, and listeners of CJSW 90.9 FM for guidance and support. And finally, thank you to the 31 unique guests who contributed to the first season of the program. Follow Rave Dad's Diary on Instagram to find out what happens next at Rave Dad's Diary. Stay safe, and we'll talk again in Season 2. Thank you.